Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Professor James Allen is the Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland. He used to teach law at the University of Otago. So even though he's Canadian, he has experience of life in both New Zealand and Australia, which is relevant at the moment, because Australia just a couple of weeks ago started a big push to attract New Zealanders to move there with the offer of citizenship after four years of residence and all the benefits that go with that citizenship. So let's find out from the perspective of someone who's lived in New Zealand and Australia how the two countries compare. Jim, thanks for joining us here. First up, uh, that meeting between Albanese and Chris Hipkins in your city of Brisbane, did that get much traction in Australia? Well, firstly, Peter, thank you for having me on again. Uh, it got a little bit. Uh, look, you, you talk about the relationship between New Zealand and Australia Uh I'm native-born Canadian. I didn't leave till I was married at 25. But the relationship between Canada and the U.S. always reminded me of New Zealand and Australia. Canadians obsess about the U.S., and the U.S. doesn't even really think about Canada ever. Uh, it's sort of similar here. The only time New Zealand makes the news is when the rugby is on. And occasionally Jacinda Ardern made the news, not always in a good way. <laughs> all right. So uh, the barbecue that we had flashed all over our television screens where uh, Chris Hipkins and Albanese were eating something that did, frankly, not look very uh, edible or very attractive, uh, maybe didn't get as much prominence there. But as somebody who's lived yeah. in both countries, in both countries, uh, and I know that it's, it's a while since, since you were in New Zealand, what, uh, 12, 11, 12 years ago. Can you just... 18, actually. Oh, really? It's that far back now? Okay. Uh, let's uh, let's summarise, uh, as you see it, the good and the bad of, of both countries. So when I left, my family and I, we had 11 great years in Dunedin at the University of Otago. And, uh, you know, we really weren't looking to leave, but I just got headhunted and the offer became too good to turn down. But we had great memories of New Zealand. Now, whether New Zealand is the same now as it was 18 years ago, I don't really think so. I got brought over last year to do something on the Hey Pua Pua, and I was sort of stunned at the level of identity politics or group rights that have infected New Zealand and the, the desire to use Maori language, which basically no one on the planet understands, in, in, in ordinal preference to English, which is the most important language on earth. I, I was just sort of stunned. Uh, now, that's starting to happen a bit in Australia, but not as much, not nearly as much, actually, although we have a constitutional referendum coming up, so who knows. Um, so I always loved living in New Zealand, but I'm not sure what it would be like these days. It's, it's uh, The last five or six years seem to have, you know, I, my view was always that uh, the New Zealand unwritten constitutional structure that was copied from Britain is probably the most successful structure in the world. And when the Jeffrey Palmers of the world talk about a written constitution and locking in the treaty, they're making a terrible error. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, Jacinda pays the press, which I still can't get over. The idea that, you know, you can be part of an authorized uh, media that gets money from government seems wrong to me. Uh, and I, I hated your response to the lockdown, but then I hated the Australian one, too. I'd like to move to Sweden. But uh, so uh, on that sense, uh, I'd be comparing Australia 
now to New Zealand quite a while ago. But just specifics, I'm happy to go through them. Australia is clearly a wealthier country. Uh, the wages are higher and the standard of living is higher, but that's not everything in life. Of course not. So when you left the University of Otago and you were a, a senior uh, lecturer or maybe even a professor of law at the University of Otago uh, back in, in the early part of the century, did you get a considerable pay rise to take up uh, a chair at the University of Queensland? Well, I tried to be promoted at Otago, but I had gotten into an argument with the then vice chancellor about uh, the massive amount of representation of Maori interests he wanted on the university council. So I don't think that helped my chances. Uh, so I got headhunted out of the blue. And, you know, I've got the oldest chair in Queensland. So I, I, my pay definitely went up a lot. But I don't think that would have made me move, except I was sort of angry at Otago for, you know, you, you can't take these things personally. But I, I thought that people with a publication record not in my league were getting promoted at any rate, it turned out for the better because uh, there were more opportunities for our kids. But we actually loved the Geneva. We really did. Um, and, you know, in life, there's a lot of luck. It had been four years in Hong Kong. So they, the problem was that when I first got to Australia, the law school was so bureaucratic. Now, Australia runs an East German style or a 1950s General Motors style um, bureaucratic type running of the university, one size fits all, uh, no decisions made at the law school level, they're all made centrally. And one of the things I said to my buddies back at Otago when I got here is whatever you do, don't hire any Australians to work in, you know, in, in New Zealand universities because you'll become completely bureaucratically one size fits all. And that is what's happened in New Zealand. Uh, you know, you bring in this, this you know, bureaucrats love to run everything. We used to have votes at the law school level, and it was pretty decentralized. And my understanding is it's not like that anymore. And so the one advantage is New Zealand universities had over Australian ones, I think, is largely dissipated. All right. So for somebody in your, in your job, though, in your uh, vocation of being a, a teacher of law, a university teacher, no matter what the, the particular subject area, do you, as a general rule, get paid more in Australia to do that job than you would in New Zealand? Hence the desire yeah, of Australians definitely. to, uh, or desire of New Zealanders to move to Australia uh, for better pay. You definitely get paid more as a general claim leave aside specific exceptions, you definitely get paid more. Okay, so that in itself must be an absolute attraction for educated New Zealanders, surely. Uh, well, I would have thought so. I mean, it's, you're, you're always trading off other variables in life, but yes, that's a big variable. Uh, you know, you might think, okay, well, I'm taking less money, but my chance of promotion is higher and that sort of thing, but and, you know, it's not the only thing, but yes, a lot of people move over because the pay is higher. And you would think that New Zealand would have cheaper housing, but if you're in Auckland, I think I read, like you can correct me on this, Peter, but I think I read that in terms of the average median house price compared to the median wage, Auckland is about one of the highest cost housing places in the world. And, you know, so it's not cheap in Australia, but I think if you're outside of Sydney, it's probably cheaper than Auckland. Yeah, I think that's the housing affordability index. And last time I looked or last time I remember it, it was like nine times, nine times uh, salary to be able to uh, buy a house in Auckland. 
which, you know, compared to, well, I suppose the time when I started buying houses, which was back in the mid-70s, late, uh, late 70s, uh, that ratio was about three to one. So the, the uh, unaffordability has increased considerably. We hear stories in this country, though, of you being able to buy, uh, you know, a house and land package in places around your, your large neighbourhood, around Brisbane, around the Gold Coast, for under a million dollars. I mean, can you still do that, buy a really oh, nice house well, for that? Yeah. Yes, you can. Not in not around Sydney, but around Brisbane. Now you're going to be commuting. You're going to be commuting, uh, maybe 45, 50 minutes if you work in the city, maybe a bit more. But you definitely can. Uh, there's still, you know, opportunities for people who want to spend less than a million. Yep, definitely. All right. What about? Uh, and, and I know you were only here last year for a fleeting visit. Uh, the, we, we complain terribly about the cost of our weekly supermarket shop. Do you have any idea or any comparison between the two countries in that respect? Uh, I don't really. My kids both live, our, my wife and our, our kids both live and work in London. And you, you go over to London and you're in an inner city little co-op, which is a tiny little grocery store. And the groceries in inner city London are cheaper than Australia. Australia is expensive for groceries. Um, I'm betting New Zealand's pretty expensive too. I don't know that for sure, but uh, in, people don't realize that uh, how wealthy Americans are because you just look at, you know, their dollar earnings. But if you look at their purchasing power in the U.S., what you can buy in the U.S. for your dollar is astounding. It'll astound you. The cost of gas and petrol is about half of what it is here, and housing is way cheaper than here. And so, you know. And that leaks over a bit to Canada. Canada is also uh, moderately wealthy because Canada, 75, 80% of its trade is with the U.S., so it has to stay sort of flexible. I just read in Australia that it had the lowest productivity growth in 60 years, and I'm pretty sure the same would be true in New Zealand. One of the knock-on bad effects of the incredibly heavy-handed, thuggish response to lockdown is that you know, not only have the the excess deaths gone through the roof, but uh, productivity growth in the economy has tanked. And people just have gotten used to being paid for doing nothing, and they've gotten used to working from home. And nobody with a straight face can tell you that someone who's working from home is doing as much as when they were at the office. <laughs> now, leave aside the odd author of a, you know, maybe the odd author who's writing a work of fiction is working flat out for eight hours at home. But most people working from home are not doing anywhere near as much work. <laughs> yes, I think that is uh, that is absolutely well established. Uh, so, James, the, the move that Albanese made to offer New Zealanders citizenship after four years of residence in Australia, uh, it's, it, it's, it's certainly had a lot of New Zealanders interested in moving, but then New Zealanders always moved to Australia, didn't they? So is it really going to be any different? Well, not really. Here, here's the thing. Uh, for a long time now, there's been a treaty, and New Zealanders can get on the plane, and they can land in Australia, and it's vice versa, and they can start working the next day. You know, that's not true. If you move to Britain or the U.S., you need a visa. You don't need a visa if you're a Kiwi or an Australian. Just get on the plane, and if you get a job the next day, uh, you get the pay. You do have to wait a couple of years to get welfare payments, but so this isn't going to change the fact that, uh, you know, you, you've always, or at least for 
quite a few decades now, you've been able to get on a plane and start working in Australia uh, as soon as you land. Uh, it makes it faster to get citizenship, but a lot of New Zealanders who are in Australia who could have applied for citizenship don't, because all you can't do is vote. You have to be a citizen in Australia to vote, unlike New Zealand, which is a residency test. In Australia, you can't vote unless you're a citizen. So I wonder if Mr. Albanese thinks that the teens are more likely to vote Labour. You don't want to be too cynical about these things, Peter. But in practical terms, it doesn't change the fact that New Zealanders can get on a plane and start working the next day. That's not going to change at all. It's just going to speed up their ability to become Australian citizens. All right. Did you become an Australian citizen? I did eventually, yeah. I first had to get the criminal record. No, that's a joke. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I did. Uh, so we now have uh, three passports, Canadian, New Zealand, and Australia. My son just got the British one, so he's got four. He's officially able to become a hitman. You need to have four. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, seriously, uh, yes, we did. So we have uh, we have all three, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand. Yeah, and has that made life easier for you by being an Australian citizen as well as uh, New Zealand and Canadian? Look, it, again, it only really affects you if you want to vote. And, the, you know, my whole area is constitutional law, and I'm a big fan of democratic decision-making. So one of the things that motivated me, I wanted to be able to vote in Australian elections. Uh, and the other thing, I guess, is that if you're a New Zealander who moves to this country and you don't become a citizen and you, create, you commit a criminal offence, then when you're out of prison, you will be deported back to New Zealand. If, you're a, if you take up citizenship, they can't deport you. So those are the two, in practice, those are really the only two main areas. Uh, your vulnerability as a non-Australian, if you create, if you commit a criminal offence to put you in prison, now that's not going to affect most people, or if you wish to vote. Otherwise, you can live over here your whole life, as many New Zealanders do, and they never take up Australian citizenship. Lots of uh, New Zealand high school students, and I say this just with anecdotal evidence, lots of New Zealand high school students seem to be becoming very interested in going to university in Australia. They believe that the standards of New Zealand universities are not appropriate. And I know of uh, one or two people myself who have left school and said, we're going to go to medical school and particularly law school in Australia because we believe the standards of education we're going to get in Australia are higher. Is that true? Well, I can only speak anecdotally. I mean, you get these rankings that you see of the universities are pretty much worthless. They're a lot, most of them are based on the natural sciences. They're based on um, the science curriculum. You know, basically, if you look at most of the top ranking systems, the Times, the Times one or the Shanghai one, if you went out as a university and hired a Nobel Prize winner and you parked her in the best hotel in the city for a year and she never saw a student, your rankings as a university would go up about 20 spots because, you know, you've hired a Nobel Prize winner. They don't measure what life is like for an undergraduate student. And my, my own anecdotal take is that uh, Australian universities are, uh, at the undergraduate level, they're not very good. And by that I mean, if you live in New Zealand, if you live in Canada or Britain or the U.S., you send your kids away to university, and half of the benefit is to get out of the house and to meet new people and... You know, the problem in Australia is uniquely in the Anglosphere, people don't send their kids away. If you're from Sydney, you go to Sydney University. If you're from Melbourne, you go to Melbourne one. And it's a very urbanized country, Australia. 
And so that tends to getting away or competing across different cities that you see all the time in Canada, you don't see it here. Um, there are knock-on benefits, uh, but the sort of half of what you like about your undergraduate degree is that you got away from home. And that was one of the great things about Otago. It was fun. You got down there and the, the kids, you know, they worked, and, but then they also went out and there was, you know, for a bit of drinking and fun and escapades. But, you know, frankly, I like that. And the Puritans have taken over the universities and the Puritans have, you know, killed the fun. I think that's happened at Otago, my former university. Um, and so that that is a problem. Now, Having said that, uh, Australian universities um, have become, as I said, very bureaucratic, and, and the COVID years made them worse. And Australians have this habit. They get to university, and they immediately get jobs. And this doesn't happen as much when you go away to university, but when you're living at home. And so I can tell you that when I, I've taught law in the States, at Cornell, and at San Diego, and Canada, and Britain, and and, it, you know, and the expectations on students in Australia, and I think now more in New Zealand, are lower because nobody works. If you're going to a good law school in Canada or Australia or Britain, that's your full-time occupation. In Australia, our, we have really good students. We take the best students from Queensland. And, you know, within a year, they've all got a job on the side. And, you know, they call themselves full-time students, but they're putting in two days a week at a big law firm. And it doesn't matter what you say. You cannot have the same expectations and what you're going to cover. And that's a problem in Australia. And it's one the university doesn't really care to fix because they don't care if the students are working. They just want to get the best students. Uh, that wasn't a problem when I went through, when I was teaching at Otago, because the students came down there. And they, you know, they, this was, they, they, weren't, they weren't having full-time jobs in the meeting. The problems at uh, uh, New Zealand universities is they become incredibly politically correct. And, you know, they're setting up departments where they're pretending that there's sort of mythical knowledge bases that compete with science, which is ridiculous. You only have to read Richard Dawkins' latest tirades about what's happening in New Zealand. And, you know, they're just wokeifying the curriculum. And I, I just despise that. Universities are about truth, not my truth. Because you don't have a truth. There is a, a true set of answers. We, we struggle to find them sometimes. But in the realm of the natural sciences, you know, we know how the world began. And a big bang, 4 billion, 3.9 billion years ago, whatever it was. And uh, not 3.9, 13, whatever, point billion years ago, 13.8. And life on Earth has been going on for 3.9 billion years. It, it's not these mythological explanations. Are, you know, it's like a religion. And we, we shouldn't treat them as competing, plausible explanations. It's, it's just, there's something wrong with that. The universities that give in to that um, deserve to see students not go there. But the same's happening in law, isn't it, in, in this country? I don't know in a, a, about in Australia, but we're having uh, high court decisions based on tikanga, which I'm sorry, as a Pakeha, I don't fully understand what tikanga is. There is a move to have this thing called tikanga uh, to be the equivalent of common law in New Zealand. So that is being taught more and more at our law schools. Uh, can you understand that yeah. as an Australian law professor? Well, and do you I, have a similar thing there? All I can say is I read that case. You know, it was in the it was in the context of Peter Ellis. And when I was in Dunedin, uh, I was part of many groups that, you know, I never sign up and join groups or sign letters, but I signed up with the Peter Ellis as part of the New Zealand Skeptics 
Because when you read the evidence against Peter Ellis, he was not guilty. In fact, he was innocent. He didn't do what they said he did. And the, the allegations against him were laughably implausible. And this poor guy, who never had his name cleared in his lifetime, uh, was convicted, and he should have been acquitted. And, you know, the New Zealand judiciary were cowards, in my view. Um, at any rate, they, they clear his name, and in the context of that, they slip in this uh, appeal, which they didn't need. They could have cleared his name just on straightforward, um, regular grounds. But they used that case to slip in the Ikonga, or whatever you called it. And I thought that was sort of a really unfortunate, bit disgraceful, really. Um, nobody understands it. And you know, the, some of the most sort of prepared to go down this touchy-feely, woke road are lawyers. Some of the most woke workplaces in Australia are big law firms. Just go into Sydney, get your pronouns ready uh, as you walk in. And I'm sure it's the same in Australia, or sorry, in New Zealand. So the lawyerly caste, which 50 years ago, you know, the, the, the median lawyer would have been politically to the right of the median voter. That's pretty clear 50, 60 years ago. Today, they're considerably to the left of the median voter. You know, it's not the old-fashioned redistribution of wealth labor party, which I have a certain affinity for. I mean, I'm not a labor voter. I'm conservative. But in terms of the kind of labor voter, left-wing voter I have the most affinity for, it's the old Dennis Healy redistribution of wealth, not woke, not trendy. Uh, but that kind of labor voter has basically disappeared, and you have these sort of what I call the human rights wing of the labor party. It goes down these, you know, they're really... They don't really care about old-fashioned redistribution of wealth. They say they do, but their real goal is to sort of undermine Western civilization in a way and uh, and to go down this path where you pretend that there aren't two sexes or two genders, that sort of thing. I hate that. So it makes me moderately unusual. And so lawyers are at least as susceptible to that. And judges, I mean, again, we're, we're talking about the Peter Ellis case, which brought that in, but your other one that I just have written about is the, uh, your, your top court in New Zealand deciding that, you know, it's a breach of fundamental human rights not to have the voting age at 16. What a load of tosh. It's one of the worst reasons decisions you'll ever read. You know, they're pretending that 16 is a fundamental right, even though Parliament sets the discrimination age at 16. So you know what? If Parliament changed it to 18, what that would just undermine the whole basis completely. It is one of the worst reasoned decisions that that uh, voted 16 decision make it 16. I mean, I I, I just could not believe that uh, the New Zealand top judiciary had sunk to that level. Well, there was another case regarding uh, some Maori land in the Bay of Plenty area that also invoked uh, Tikanga as well. Uh, Justice Churchman. Uh, made a point of making his decision based on Maori Tikanga in the Marine and Coastal uh, Act, which replaced the Foreshore and Seabed Act, which you may remember from your time here. But again, a very complicated decision. The, the issue seems to be that common law, English common law, which has, well, it really has been one of the great exports to the world, hasn't it? It's uh, It's been part of the, the way that Commonwealth countries have um, have operated, it seems to be being undermined by something that, frankly, a lot of New Zealanders don't know much about. And as a law professor, that must bother you intensely, doesn't it? 
Well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, the common law just means judge-made law. It used to mean law common to everyone in the 1500s, 1600s. But now, basically, when you say common law, you mean judge-made law. And when your judges get infected by a virus uh, in terms of wanting to be at the most cutting-edge progressive end of society, then the common law stops looking very good. Um, now, of course, you know, it's common law that's incorporating these Maori notions that no one can put their finger on. I think it's terrible. Uh, but again, I'm a, I'm a very, very minority view amongst sort of Anglosphere uh, law professors. Uh, it, it, it seems to be worse in New Zealand right now, but, it, but it's coming that way in Australia. We have this big constitutional referendum coming up. Uh, you know, I, I think luckily when Australia copied the American Constitution, because we basically in Australia have the most American Constitution in the world in terms of we just basically copied the American written Constitution, uh, except that we uh, didn't put in a Bill of Rights, which I think is good. I don't like Bills of Rights, again, because it gives too much power to the unelected judiciary. And the other thing they didn't copy the Americans on is how you amend the Constitution here. They went for a Swiss model where you where you ask the voters if they want, you ask everyone, all the voters, if they want to change the Constitution. That's very unusual. In Canada, where I'm from, if you want to change the written Constitution, you need both houses of parliament, so that's politicians, and then you need two-thirds of the state, the provincial legislatures, that's politicians. And in the U.S., of course, you need both houses of Congress and then three-quarters of the state legislature. So you never ask people in North America. If you want to change the written constitution, it's totally up to the political class. In Australia, if you had that system, we would be a republic, because the political class wants to be a republic. I think that's a mistake. I think you know the system works. And if you just ask the politicians, they would already have gone down the path that you're going down in New Zealand of having a race-based or a group rights-based uh, setup where certain people based on their genetic uh, inheritance have extra say or, you know, uh, overweighted say. But in Australia, you can't change the written constitution without a binding referendum. Voting is compulsory in Australia, so you have to vote. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll come back. Jim, we'll come back to uh, the voice and the referendum on that uh, very shortly. But can we just go back quickly to universities? You may have uh, got the news across the Tasman that your, your old university in New Zealand, the University of Otago, is uh, in real financial trouble. Its full-time equivalent student numbers are down the best part of 1%. They were budgeting for, I think, a 5% increase in their FTEs. Uh, there are massive budget holes. Hundreds of staff, including academic staff, are likely to lose their jobs. Is that sort of thing happening in Australia as well? Are there fewer students around Australian universities than there used to be as well? Nothing like what's happened at Otago. And I'm really sad about Otago. It was such a great university. You know, they're talking about bringing in a Maori name that sits underneath. And, you know, for the last eight or nine years, as I said, the Puritans have taken over. And what do I mean by that? You know, I don't mean that you, you go out and encourage young people who've just moved down there to go out drinking. But part of life as a young person is to learn about uh, living on your own with other people. And on a Friday night, you go out for beers and you, you do silly things sometimes. But if you're not in danger, people, that, that was one of the, my great memories of going to University in Canada, Queens. It was, Queens is the Otago of Canada. It was founded by the same sort of Presbyterian Scots, and it's 
architecture is the same as Otago. And it was the same sort of everyone who went to Queens was in a small town of Kingston. They didn't come, you know, very few people in Otago come from Dunedin. You know, their biggest import thing was Auckland. And if you start turning Otago into some sort of Puritan uh, university, well, why would you go down there? <laughs> and then you start having these course offerings where you you pretend that, uh, you know, there's, there's this other alternative that's on some sort of equal footing with Western science. Western science is one of the great accomplishments of the Enlightenment. It's not culturally specific. It delivers mind-independent true answers. And when you start pretending that sort of uh, some sort of Maori or any other cultural foundational myths are on the same level as science, there's something terribly wrong with the people running your universities. And let me say also with the, the New Zealand World Society, for I, I can't remember all the details off the top of my head, but I remember four or five people objected to what the Royal Society was doing in New Zealand. And I think they were thrown out. You can correct me on that, Peter. But, you know, just have to go and read Richard Dawkins. And so those sort of maneuvers make going away from home to, to Otago less attractive. Yeah, that was the uh, the case of the famous, the infamous, uh, I guess you'd say, Listener 7, they, the seven professors in Auckland, yeah. uh, wrote uh, a, a letter to the, the Listener magazine and unbelievably, yeah. the vice chancellor at uh, Auckland University uh, scolded them, and I think uh, two of them lost their jobs, which was just quite extraordinary. It was a, a very bad the, the day in New Zealand people, academia. Look, I've always said the kind of people who rise to the top in bureaucratic Anglosphere universities, and it's worse in Australia and New Zealand, are sort of the people who had mediocre careers. There are exceptions, academic careers, and they like being bureaucrats, and we massively overpay them. So it's way worse here in Australia, but Australian vice chancellors are some of the highest paid in the world. You know, they're making 1.3, 1.4 million. And to get to the top, you know, they don't value outspoken uh, sort of iconoclasts. They like, they value people who work their way off as dean. And then, you know, there's, since there's so little say at, at the sort of subsidiary level, it's not decentralized. You're just a yes man and applying the rules, and then you become a PVC, and then you become a DVC, and then you go somewhere and you get the vice chancellor's job, and you make a lot of money. And, you know, I don't, I mean, I, I got into, I didn't get into trouble, but I wrote a piece here in Australia about 11 years ago saying that a moderately numerate year 11 student could probably run a university better than most vice chancellors because they wouldn't have a huge diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracy sucking out tons of money to enforce basically non-merit-based rules that are based on the, you know, the kind of reproductive organs you have or the kind of skin pigmentation. And so I would shut down the entire diversity, equity, inclusion um, bureaucracies that infect universities. Now, nobody, nobody will do that. Uh, and so I don't really think that the kind of people who make their way to the top of universities are, you know, the odds are against them being particularly um, sort of far-thinking and adventurous and aiming for excellence. They say they aim for excellence because they have to. But what they mean by that is ticking all the bureaucratic boxes. And, you know, it, it, it can be a... And it's, triply bad if you happen to be an outspoken conservative. I, I am, but I, I don't have to pay much of a cost for that. I'm, 
they've always left me alone here because I came over to a named chair, and so I don't have to worry about getting promoted or any other anything else really. So I'm in a lucky position, and I'm also, you know, I'm genetically disposed, or I'm, I was brought up in a family where, you know, I, I don't, I have a high appetite for risk. I'll just say what I think, and you know. Yep, I understand that. So but, but you're also yeah. you're also tenured, uh, so you have, uh, I suppose, a good deal of financial security. Just before we started this conversation, I was listening to a piece on the radio about uh, Australian universities and how only 30% of the staff have permanent jobs. And so many of them, uh, the academic staff, are uh, they're on casual contracts and as a consequence, when they're younger, have difficulty getting bank loans to buy houses, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a bit of industrial action about that, isn't there? Yeah, look, I don't know the numbers, but my, my guess when they came up to that is what they mean is 30% of the academic in-class staff. But what your listeners need to know is Australian universities, some of them upwards of 60% of the people on the payroll are not in the classroom and they're not researching. They are administrators. The level of bureaucracy in Australian universities is astounding. It's literally astounding. So you have this huge bureaucracy that runs the universities, and no one would run their own business this way. Now, part of it is the need to, you know, the federal government demands uh, a certain amount of regulation, and you have to answer their questions. But a lot of it is self-imposed by the universities. Um, and so, again, you've got a vice chancellor on a huge salary, and then you have a team of deputy vice chancellors also on a huge salary, and, and they make all the decisions are made from the center in a one-size-fits-all way. You know, when I was at Otago, we would have meetings in the law school, and we would vote on things that mattered, and the vote would determine what we did. In my 18 years in Australia, and, I, and that's no longer true, I don't think, but in my 18 years in Australia, there has never once in my law school been a vote on anything that mattered. It all gets told to you from above. And that's very problematic, unless you believe that, you know, the sort of centrally planned economy model um, with your five-year plan delivers good outcomes. I don't. I don't think the people who run universities have a clue how to run a good law school. Um, but I think the, that problem has infected New Zealand as well. Indeed. Can we move now to this upcoming referendum in Australia for The Voice? And to explain it in a New Zealand context, I, I guess it's sort of similar to what we have, and we've had for the best part of 50 years now, the Waitangi Tribunal, which is this group of people who... Uh, investigate and then make recommendations, but they cannot make binding recommendations. They cannot make legislation. Is the voice, if and when it ever becomes part of the Constitution, is that going to have a similar status? It's going to be a recommendatory body only. So, firstly, Peter, I think your listeners need to understand that New Zealand, Britain, and maybe Israel are are the three outliers in the democratic world. You don't have a written constitution. By that, you normally mean one single document that regulates um, the core functions of government. And I like that model, right? And so you can't actually recreate what's happening in Australia and New Zealand, because in New Zealand, if the government, no government would ever have the, the sort of cojones to do this. But if you wanted to get rid of the Waitangi Tribunal, you just pass the statute and it's gone. Because you guys have what is known as parliamentary sovereignty. The elected parliament can legally do anything. Anything. I like that system. It's very democratic. It leads all the decisions to each generation. 
every other democratic country in the world has a written constitution. And so once you put something in the written constitution, it doesn't matter what the elected parliament says. It's locked in. And so if this voice proposal gets put into the written constitution, parliament can't get rid of the voice. <laughs> it's part of the written constitution. It's not like you could just pass a statute and get rid of the Waitangi Tribunal. Now, it says the, the, the proposal that Mr. Albanese and Labour is putting forward is that this, this voice body will be, and the quote is, may make representations to Parliament on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That's point two of the proposal. And this Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to it. <laughs> so because it's subject to the Constitution, the body, the judges will say that Parliament has to follow, uh, uh, allow this body to make representations. So firstly, the question is, what does it mean, matters relating to Aboriginal people? Well, in theory, that's every law is a matter that relates to Aboriginal people, because it's, you know all laws affect all of us. And the other question is, well, will they turn may make representations into a constitutional right to be consulted? I think they will. I don't think it will happen right away. I think given the kind of judges we're seeing right now, it's only a matter of time. I give it 10 years, and then it'll become Parliament will have to consult, and the voice body will be able to slow things down. And my sense is that, you know, the activists will take it over. We don't have any details about how it will be selected. But these activists will, you know, they'll be much more inclined to go along with big spending labor proposals than sort of a thrifty, frugal right-of-center party that wants to cut back. And how long do you have to consult with? And will it be easier just to, you know, buy them off? And do they end up then in the rent-seeking business? And I think that's very likely. And proponents of this voice body, of course, say, oh, this is a path to reconciliation. I think that's just ludicrous. I think what we're going to see is that people have very hard feelings because, you know, one of the core tenets of liberal democracy is the idea of equal citizenship, where everyone counts the same and everyone gets a vote. And the minute you go down the sort of three waters path you've gone down, or the hey, pua, pua path, or over here, the voice, you know, people say, well, it's not based on race. Well, in a sense, that's scientifically true, because in a sense, race doesn't really make any scientific sense. Or, you know, the human, um, the, the diversity amongst humans when it comes to their genes is pretty small. It's less than a chimpanzee. So let's just put it this way. There will be a different treatment for people based on characteristics they're born with and they can't influence. Some people in Australia, if this goes through, will have a vote for parliament and some say in picking this voice body. And other people will only have a say in parliament. And that's not equal citizenship. And on any basic understanding of rights, it gives special rights. And they're assigned based on group status. And I don't see how in the long run that's you know, going to lead to reconciliation. And what it's likely to lead to is the next step, which is a demand for, you know, a treaty. Who knows what that means? And then, you know, they want to have a truth-telling commission. They don't really want to tell the truth about everything. They just want to tell the truth about, you know, uh, certain things. And so I don't see how in the long run uh, setting up a body like this, and when you put it in the Constitution, you can't get rid of it. 
nothing would stop the Labour government from setting up a voice body tomorrow by statute. If you want to set up a white hangy tribunal type thing, they have the numbers in both houses. They could pass a statute that says we're having a voice body. And you know, no one would get too worked up about it because when the new government comes in, they could repeal it if they want. And one of the things that John Howard did was repeal a certain similar-like body, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago called ASIC. So uh, the problem with putting it in the Constitution is, uh, politically, no one really thinks the Parliament will stand up to the body. The left-wing parties don't really want to stand up to it because they're largely going to agree with it. And there's no evidence from around the Anglosphere that any right-of-center political party has what's known as a backbone. (laughs) They've all become invertebrates. The idea that they stand up to anyone on anything uh, sort of beggars belief. And so we're going to be stuck with this. And, you know, I said from day one it's going to fail. It's a bit of a hostage to fortune. Um, I think that we're looking at in Australia something that's remarkably similar to the Brexit vote, where all of the elites, the corporate elites, the wealthiest people in society, government, and the sort of human rights left-wing barristers brigade, they're all on one side. And you're sort of middle, lower middle class, working type people are on the other side. I generalize, obviously. And I think we're going to get the same result as we got with Brexit. I think it's going to fail, or in the Brexit case, pass, because the elites are going to lose this. So what's the polling at the moment, Jim? Well, let me first premise this by saying that when they first mooted a a republic here in Australia, the first polls were at 71% in favour and by the time they actually had the vote, it lost in every state. So the polls here were strongly in favour at first because nobody knew what it was. You know, they just keep saying it's all about reconciliation, which is garbage. And it's all about recognising Aboriginals. And if they just put a little, you know, a little phrase or two in the preamble saying, you know, we recognise that Australia... Uh, is on land where for 60,000 years Aboriginal people lived or something. No one would care, really, you know. But it's not about that. It's about putting in this political body that's going to have more say. And, you know, it won't have a veto, but it won't need to have a veto because politically it'll get its way 90, 95% of the time, I think. And so the polls started off highly in favour. Now, the latest polls I've seen, uh, committed yeses are down to 46%. Committed no's are, you know, I don't know, high 30s, and then there's always undecided. But normally, the undecided break no. Now, there's been 44 constitutional referenda in Australia, and of those, uh, 36 failed. Uh, And of the 36 failures, all but five of them failed because you couldn't get a majority of Australians to say yes. And when I go back and look at those referenda, I sort of agree with the voters in all but two of the 44. Uh, so, again, I'm an outlier. If you like lefty, woke things, you're not going to be happy with the referenda record. So that's one thing. Now, what's different about this referendum is that the Labour Prime Minister is not funding the no case. So traditionally in the past, the government funded both the yes case and the no case, and you've got this sort of um, two-page little blurb sent to your house, and you could read what the yes people said and what the no people said. He's not doing that. Now, I think that's outrageous. Now, he's not funding the yes case either, but he doesn't need to because, you know, the big corporations, the charities, everybody you would think of as a progressive sort of cutting-edge person, they're giving huge money to fund the yes case. They're going to outspend the no case massively. Um, 
you know, there's some money coming into the no case. But I still think the no case is going to win because at the end of the day, Australians can tell that there's something going on here when you're saying to people uh, there's political problems and there's legal problems. But the main problem is you're just not treating citizens equally. And I've always thought it's a bit weird when someone stands up and says, you know, I'm one-eighth Aboriginal and seven of my great-grandfathers oppressed the eighth one. You're born, you're lucky. The luckiest people on the planet who have ever lived are born in Western liberal democracies today. If you're born in New Zealand or Australia, you've won the lottery. And to sit there and wallow in victimhood, you know, it's, it's a bit weird. I mean, I just went to state schools. I'd never met anyone who went to a private school until I went to university. But I didn't sit there and say, you know, I'm so unlucky. You, if you could be born in New Zealand or Australia, you're some of the luckiest people who've ever lived. And I, you know, the one good thing we did with our kids is we told them, you, you don't get to be a victim in life. It's one of the most malign things you can do to your children. Well, it's very much an industry in this country as well, as you may remember. It's certainly uh, increased in intensity in recent times, the, the victimhood industry, the, the treaty industry. Uh, I'm a great fan of The Spectator magazine, and I, I read your columns assiduously. Your editor there, Rowan Dean, uh, wrote an interesting piece recently, though, when he said that, in effect, Australia already has uh, a body, and I don't know what the name of it is off the top of my head, a body similar to what The Voice uh, would do. Is that true? Do you know about that? Well, no. What he meant is that there are all sorts of these statutory bodies where, uh, you know, Aboriginal people have input into laws that might affect them. Nobody's really against that. The problem is the way this voice body is worded, it doesn't just restrict itself to matters that are explicitly about Aboriginal. It, it will be interpreted to apply to every law that's ever made. And it applies to the executive as well as the parliament, and it's entrenched in the Constitution. And so Rowan, our editor, who's a great man and very brave, you know, The Spectator was the only written weekly publication that I know of in the entire Anglosphere that from day one said this, these lockdowns are thuggish, they're illiberal, and they're morally wrong. And he never wavered from that, even though there was incredible pressure. So he's a, and he's, you know, he's good on this stuff. I think what he means is there are lots of bodies and they're statutory bodies. And that means that if a government thinks they've gone a bit off the rails, they can just pass a statute. And, you know, they're a bit unlike the voice in that it's possible, I think likely, that the voice body will be interpreted to give this body a say on every single law that comes before Parliament because of the wording, you know. It says matters relating to Aboriginal peoples. Well, that can be anything. Uh, if you if you look at the kind of judges we're producing, that's the likely way it's going to go. So these, there are these bodies. In fact, there's loads of them. There's one main overarching one. I forget the name. And then there's a bunch of other ones. And in a sense, you know, if it's just about how things how we're conducting affairs in predominantly Aboriginal. Um, you know, outback areas of Australia, well, of course you want input. You want them to tell you what you... So no one's against that that I know of. And everyone recognizes that when it comes to social statistics, teenage pregnancies, drug use, violence, um, you know, battered women, that sort of thing, the social statistics are bad. They're way worse than for the rest of the population. They're a lot better, by the way, when you look at Aboriginal people who are living in urban areas. The gap is much, much closer so, you know, when people move to areas where there are jobs and they get jobs, things get a lot better. This is not rocket science. 
if you're in an area where there aren't very many jobs, it's not clear to me how you fix those sort of social statistics. And I, and I definitely don't think that putting something in the Constitution, that as far as I can tell, the only argument proponents have is it's all symbolism. This is symbolic. I'm very skeptical about symbolism. You know, the, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. I, I want some somebody to map out for me how this is going to make life better on the ground. And symbolism doesn't really ever do it. It's just going to lead to bitterness and uh, recriminations, I think. Well, it just seems to me from what you've described that the legislative process, which is slow at the best of times, could be absolutely, absolutely throttled by uh, the, the the voice and the... The, the the statements that have well, to be made out of that. I agree with you. I agree with you, and it's worse in Australia because, again, most democracies do not have very powerful upper houses. So the idea of having... We have bicameral system in Australia because we copied the Americans, and bicameralism means you have two houses of the legislature. Now, New Zealand only has one legislative house. My native Canada has at the federal level, one house and the upper house is appointed and it doesn't block anything because it's appointed and no one takes it seriously. And every province in Canada has only one house and, you know, Britain has an upper house, but it's appointed or it's hereditary and they don't do anything. And Australia has a really powerful upper house, so it's already hard to get the laws enacted. You can win an election and then, you know, a couple of independents from Tasmania can block your legislative program, even though you took it to the voters in your manifesto. And that happened to Tony Abbott. And so we already have sclerotic lawmaking in Australia. Add in the voice body, and you're going to have a third level. And so it's it's not like you're bringing this in in Canada where, you know, it would be bad, but you'd only be adding one level. You're you're adding it in Australia to an already sclerotic system with an incredibly powerful upper house. So, which is not responsive to who won the latest election. All right. So, which is when, why you know you had the. Sorry. Yeah, I just got to say, when is when is the big day? When is polling day for this referendum? He hasn't he hasn't he hasn't set the date unless he said it today, and I haven't heard about it. It's going to be at the end of this year, sometime October, November. Uh, he'll watch the polls. I mean, in a way, Albanese is in trouble because if he loses this referendum, and uh, you know, for the first time. Peter Dutton is showing the, a bit of a backbone and come out against this because a lot of right of center liberal leaders would not have done that. All of the liberal parties at the state level are basically saying they're in favor or they can't decide. So Dutton's done a good job. And as soon as he came out against, again, that, that helped the polls because it's a lot of leading people. Noel Pearson, one of the top KCs, have basically come out and said, if you're against this, you're a racist which is a despicable way of arguing. It's just despicable. Nobody's a racist who's against this, or almost no one's a racist. What they don't like is what this is going to do to the structure of government. And people are afraid of being labeled racist. So when one of the two main parties comes out against, it gives you cover for saying, look, I'm not a racist. Now, um, I, I, I think it's despicable. I don't think anything... I've made loads of arguments, and none of them are race-related. It's... it's and, and so this is the, the sort of last refuge of the scoundrel, where you have no substantive arguments in favor. So what you do is you make ad hominem arguments. And we're seeing that quite a bit over here. And I think we might see it more if the polls continue to dip. 
But we see it in New Zealand as well. We see it in New Zealand as well when we try to have discussions about uh, the three waters and co-governance and the like. So what you're saying is that the the education for the public, the information for the public, uh, particularly for the no side, is not going to be very prevalent because nobody's prepared to fund it, especially uh, a neutral government information program, uh, which won't happen. Well, look, yes, when John Howard put the proposal for the referendum for the republic, he didn't want a republic, but he fully funded the yes case. And that is the tradition in Australia. And Mr. Albanese has come up with this patently absurd argument that, you know, people don't read written material anymore and, you know, you can get anything you want online. And so uh, we're not going to fund either side. But he knows that the yes case will be massively funded. Now, people are funding the no case. It's not that there's no funding. It's just that it's much, much, much smaller. And so, uh, you know, in a sense, I would have thought that anyone who cares about sort of equal-handed treatment uh, is just on the fact they're gaming the system, which is clearly what they're doing, uh, would would throw that into the hopper and weighing how to vote. Again, I could be way off on this, but I think it's going to lose. I said it from day one, and I'm more confident now than I was before because Mr. Dutton has come out against He's not running the kind of campaign I would. If I were Mr. Dutton, I'd just be saying, in a liberal democracy, the core tenant is equal citizenship, and this this is nothing to do with recognition. It is taking us down the path where there is unequal citizenship. Some people have different entitlements than others based on characteristics they're born with, and that's wrong. And then you can go through the detail of why it's going to lead to sclerotic lawmaking and why Parliament won't be able to stand up to it and why it will lead to rent-seeking behaviour and why the activist class will take over the body. All that is good arguments as well. But the core principle-based argument, I think, is, you know, you, you, don't, you, you, have a, you ought in today's world to have a written constitution that is, in effect, in a big-picture sense, colorblind. Well, it seems like you have an issue in Australia which, frankly, is, well, it's the mirror image of what is happening in this country. And at some stage on the 14th of October, New Zealanders will make up their mind a little bit later in the year, Australians will make up theirs. Uh, I know from what you've said which way you hope it goes, and I'm of the uh, very firm opinion that the 14th of October is an absolutely seminal day for New Zealand history as well. It really is. And Peter, is there anything you can do to get the National Party leader to show, uh, you know, some sort of backbone? <laughs> well, maybe he can make a phone call what to Peter a, Dutton. What a wet noodle. Yeah. Yeah, well, Peter Dutton's wet there. Luxon doesn't seem to have any sort of core backbone. You wouldn't want to be in a trench with the man. No, you, you're telling me nothing. You're telling me absolutely nothing. Yep. Uh, frankly, uh I know he's let us down so many times before, but that guy Winston Peters is looking more and more attractive uh, in this country because uh, he's actually prepared to stand up. He and he and Seymour are the ones with the courage on the right. Unfortunately, they yep. don't like well, he, each he other. Goes, he owes New Zealand. That's right. He owes New Zealand because he put our dern in. So if anyone can, anyone has a moral obligation to fix it, it's Mr. Peters. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, James, great talking to you as always, and we look forward to uh, developments in Australia. We may get you back uh, later in the year once that vote has been concluded and uh, we can talk about, if you lose, uh, talk about your plans for trying to find another country in the world to live in. I know. I'm running out of countries. I'm one step ahead of extradition has been my motto in life.
<laughs> Good stuff. James Allen from the University of Queensland. Great talking with you. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even better, if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.